Hello, fellow peacemakers. Welcome to episode 18 of Make Peace Not Beef. I'm your host Lily. Today, I am so pumped to talk about one of the biggest movies made in 2020, none other than Sir David Attenborough's epic documentary, A Life on Our Planet. I'll be joined by Alicia Dale, a fellow environmentalist, nature lover from Work on Climate, and we'll be sharing with you what we thought of this movie. In addition, we'll also talk about why female empowerment is the key to solving climate change. Just a quick reminder that the video version of this interview, which is way better, is on my YouTube channel, Make Peace Not Beef. So be sure to check it out. Subscribe, like, and comment. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Make Peace Not Beef for episode highlight, bonus content, and more. Also, listeners, I am super curious who's listening, so I want to hear from you. If you're thinking, Make Peace Not Beef is an awesome podcast, and I learned so much. Well, then don't forget to leave me a five-star review on Apple or Google Podcasts, and send me an email with your questions or feedbacks at lily at makepeacenotbeef.com. That's Lily spelled with two L's. My doors open wide to your questions. Your support means so much to me, and I want to say a big thank you for continuing to listen to my podcast. All right. Without further ado, over to the recorded interview with Alicia. Hello, fellow peacemakers. Welcome to episode 18 of Make Peace Not Beef. This is your host Lily, and my guest today is Alicia Dale, a lifelong environmentalist. Alicia and I are going to talk about Sir David Attenborough's epic documentary, A Life on Our Planet, filmed last year in 2020, and it basically talks about the planet's dramatic decline over the past century. Now, if you haven't seen this documentary, you definitely need to go see it. It's on Netflix. In fact, I think every human should go see this documentary, and it should be translated into every language. Before I get into the movie, I'd like to introduce my guest Alicia, who I'm going to discuss our thoughts on the movie with. So, Alicia, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, what your interests and hobbies are, any fun facts we should know about you. Hi, my name is Alicia Dale. I live in Colorado, and I'm a DevOps engineer working in artificial intelligence and machine learning. When I'm not working, you can find me volunteering my technical skills in the green energy space, or making shampoo and conditioner bars for my store on Etsy in an effort to reduce plastic waste. Nice. A fun fact is that I did volunteer work in South Africa in 2016 for wildlife conservation. Yeah, it was really interesting. <laughs> I was、um, accompanied by 20 or so. Other volunteers who assisted researchers with collecting data about wildlife species and documenting our findings to explore patterns and further understand animal behavior. Wow, how old were you when you went to South Africa? Twenty-four. Damn. And was that your first time visiting Africa? That was my first time traveling internationally. Wow, that must have been an incredible experience. And, and so, at what point in your life did you feel like you became aware of a decline in the world's biodiversity? When I was a child, I was just addicted to Animal Planet and just watching <laughs> animal shows all the time on Discovery Channel. And it really hit me that we were headed into a crisis when the film Planet in Peril was released in 2007, featuring Jeff Corwin. And yeah, I was 15 years old at the time, and the film focused heavily on global warming, overpopulation, deforestation, and species loss. Is there a time in your life when you felt like you were aware of the biodiversity is declining? Yeah, a little bit of backstory. So my upbringing is very different from Alicia's. Like she grew up close to nature, so I actually grew up in the densely populated capital city of 
China. So I grew up, I was born and raised in Beijing, right around the time where the city was going through a rapid phase of urbanization. So you see all these skyscrapers springing up. And then all of a sudden, traffic congestion became a huge problem. So you start to see so much pollution and land and water and all these resources were being feverishly devoured by all these urban development projects. So growing up, I was witnessing all the damage that humanity was doing to our environment. So kind of different from you, because you grew up loving nature. I sort of grew up witnessing the destruction of nature. And that's when I became environmentally concerned. The fact that I I wasn't around nature so much, the fact that I wanted to see nature, but I was surrounded by this booming city and seeing so much food waste and pollution around me and, and poor air quality, that really got me thinking maybe humans were the issue. So why don't we get into the film? So for our listeners who don't know who Sir David Attenborough is, Alicia, would you like to tell them a little bit about Sir David Attenborough and why he is so important? Yeah. David Attenborough is an English broadcaster and natural historian. And if you've ever watched a documentary about wildlife, you most likely have heard his name. <laughs> his most popular pieces of work happen to be our planet, planet Earth, the blue planet, and then most recently, a life on our planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is now 93 years old. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the documentary that we will be discussing highlights how the world has changed throughout his lifetime how forests Mm. appeared and how much the population has increased and the devastating effects of loss of species and biodiversity. And then he gives some great examples as well, what we can do to take action to save our planet. So also for listeners who don't know, uh, Sir David Attenborough has traveled literally to every corner of the world throughout his life, right? Like he's been to Serengeti in Africa. He's witnessed the mass migrations of the mammals. He's been to the North and South Pole. He's been to the Galapagos Island. He's, he's been to the Amazon forest. He's been underwater witnessing the bleaching coral reefs, which I will get into. So he's literally been everywhere. So he's like the most qualified person to make a documentary about a life on our planet. I love how all his documentaries contain the word planet, you know, like our planet, planet Earth, the blue planet, a life on our planet. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The next one's going to be like the end of our planet or something. (laughs) But I I love the fact that he's 93 and he's still making documentaries. And, you know, maybe when he was younger, he was making documentaries. That was his job as a natural historian, as a journalist. But now that he's almost approaching 100, he is now producing this film as a witness statement to everything that he has experienced throughout his life, bore witness to, to the decline of nature, right? So he produced A Life on a Planet as a witness statement and also as a message to the future generation. It's almost like a foreboding of what would happen if we don't do anything about it, but then also what are some of the actions that we can take, right? To prevent ourselves from falling over the edge of the cliff. Yeah. And it's a great summarization of the last 100 years. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think about what the next 100 years could be like. Definitely. Can you describe how you felt after watching this movie in three words, like three adjectives? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I felt shocked, sad, and then very hopeful at the end (laughs) of the film. Wait, you felt shocked, sad, but then also hopeful? How come? How is it possible that you feel both sad and hopeful at the same time? I think it's really just how the story was told. Mm -hmm. So 
beginning, the shocking factor comes from seeing David Attenborough walk through the halls of Chernobyl. And that is a mistake that we made as a society. And then sad, as he went into greater detail of the deforestation, the species loss, seeing animals lose their homes, but then hopeful at the end because he brought up some action items that we could all take to turn this around and bring back the biodiversity. So yeah, how about you, Lily? What did you feel after the film in three adjectives? Ooh, man, I, uh, I'm not sure if I can sum it up into three adjectives, but this is honestly how I felt. I felt more motivated to work on climate, to do whatever it is that I was doing. So I think there are days where I struggle with motivation and productivity, as all of us do. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and then there's days where I wake up and like, what is the meaning of life? Am I even making a difference in this world? But then after seeing this movie, I felt all the motivation in the world to keep doing what I'm doing with this podcast and with working on climate and just spreading the message and raising awareness and basically mobilizing people into taking action. Yeah. So if I were to sum that up into three words, maybe like motivated, inspired, like definitely I also felt shocked and sad and all those things. But I think at this point, the motivation outweighs the, the fear. Yeah. So Alicia, you mentioned in the opening scene, David was talking about the destruction of Chernobyl which was due to a human error, the nuclear meltdown. And now that community is no longer inhabitable. And I think that sends out a powerful message that our planet could soon become inhabitable due to human error if we carry on the way that we are going about things, right? Like if climate change were to carry on unabated, our planet could very well become Chernobyl on a larger scale. That was the message that I took away from it. What about you? Yeah, I feel like we definitely need more incentives to do the right thing, to bring forth action. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. So Alicia, for you, what was the most memorable scene? When I saw the orangutan in Borneo Forest, there's all this flattened rainforest. Mm -hmm. And there's this orangutan looking back at its home that's now completely destroyed with just one tree left standing. And it climbs the tree and looks around as if it doesn't believe or recognize the landscape and like looks confused and lost. And that was just really sad for me to see. And that's due to deforestation, right? Yeah, they were cutting down the mm-hmm. trees in the, in the Borneo rainforest to make space for palm oil trees, a monoculture. Oh. So like they cut down the rainforest, they make profit from selling the wood and timber and then when they plant palm oil, that's a crop that makes them money for many generations to come. So, yeah. And for listeners who are not familiar, palm oil is probably one of the most widely used oils for all intents and purposes, right? Like in food in clothing in manufacturing, it's likely that 80% of the food you eat, probably if it's store-bought, it probably contains palm oil of some kind. Like Alicia mentioned, it's terrible for the environment. And there are companies who have stopped using palm oil specifically because that is tied to the Amazon forest and deforestation that's happening in the Amazon forest, right? You have to cut down all these trees to grow palm oil. And right now it's being harvested in a very unsustainable manner. So the Borneo forest, guys, for, for listeners who don't know, it is a like a very large forest in Southeast Asia. I think it's somewhere in like Malaysia and in Indonesia. It houses so much biodiversity. And unfortunately, I think it experienced one third loss, like Alicia mentioned, due to logging, due to deforestation. 
And you're wondering, why are we cutting down trees? People ask like, oh, then don't cut down trees. Well, because we need to clear the land. David Attenborough mentioned this in the film. And he said, cutting down trees, there's a double benefit from logging, right? There's the benefit from the timber. And then there's benefit from the land that's left behind for farming. So for me, the most memorable scene was actually the bleaching of the coral reefs. It was one of the most shocking scenes in the movie, but it was so beautiful how they filmed it. You know, first underwater, you see these beautifully colorful and vibrant coral reefs over time turning into this dead zone. You know, it it looks almost like a cemetery, right? Full of remnants from the past. And you see all these coral reefs losing their color. But coral reefs is literally the lifeline of marine life. I think I read this statistic somewhere that coral reefs actually support roughly 25% of all marine life. So that's a huge percentage. And for, for listeners who eat seafood, like I'm vegan, you're a vegetarian, but for listeners who are eating seafood, like if you love tuna, which is I think now down to 4% of its original population, that's how crazy like, you know, fishes are declining because of ocean plastic, because of pollution, because of dying coral reefs and all this stuff and ocean acidity and increased carbon in the ocean. Like this is really messing with, like you said, marine biodiversity. We're seeing a huge decline because of human intervention that has caused the broader ecosystem to change. We're going to see a massive marine die-off in the next 30 years if we don't do something about it. Oceans are the cooling system of the earth, right? Because they absorb so much heat and they also trap so much carbon dioxide. As the ocean starts to warm, fishes will no longer be able to survive in those conditions. But also further up the food chain, humans who then eat those fishes, right? There's a couple of problems. Number one, bioamplification. Because fishes nowadays contain so much toxins and chemicals and plastics, guess who's going to get all of that when they eat it? Humans. And number two, Fishes are slowly starting to die off because of the changing acidity in the ocean, because of all the, this plastics that is no longer making the ocean a habitable place for marine wildlife. So just because we're not seeing what's happening in the oceans doesn't mean that the effects are not going to carry over to life on land. Yeah, I guess like back to one of the most memorable scenes for me, singing the orangutan, losing its its home. And that also made me think about when I was doing volunteer work in South Africa (laughs) and poaching was also a threat to species in addition to deforestation. And we had some researchers that had witnessed poaching during their time on the reserve. Mm -hmm. And, And these were from the black rhino and the elephants as well. We would do game drives during the day in addition to in the evening. And in the evening was especially important because we want to make sure that no one was trying to get in through the gates. There have been some occurrences where people had tried to dig under the gate and try to get in because they really want to get at the animals. That's a really big driver for these people. Wait, so Alicia, what are they using these animal body parts for? So there's a big incentive to take the horn of the rhino and the elephant tusks Mm -hmm. and sell them primarily to China. And they would earn enough money to feed their family for an entire year. These are areas where there isn't a good education system. There isn't really any contraception. Let's say you're you're a man and you have a wife and three kids. You can't find work and you have this big incentive to, I need to feed my family. Then you can definitely be driven to do something drastic like this because you're put in a very tight, stressful situation. Right. 
Right. So it's like a vicious cycle, right? Like you're poor and then desperate times call for desperate measures. You resort to poaching, which is not only illegal and it harms animals, but I don't understand why we need to keep exploiting animal body parts for our own pleasure desires. Absolutely makes no sense. But yeah, when you're impoverished and you're just finding a ways to make ends meet. And then because there is a demand for this and therefore there's a supply, right? And then people resort to poaching for that. And the smaller the supply, the higher the price. Absolutely. When there's less and less, you can feed your family for two years then as as time continues because it's actually will be worth more money the more rare it is. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason why poaching is such a big problem other than, you know, we don't want to harm any animals is because I feel like every species in the ecosystem has a very specific role to play. And when our ecosystem is out of balance, then the entire thing is out of balance. Right? Even the tiniest disappearance of a group of species is going to cause a butterfly effect that's going to ripple through the entire ecosystem. And over time, we're going to start to feel it. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know what a keystone species is until it's exactly. gone. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, can you just explain what a keystone species is? So yeah, the, the, the gray wolf is an example of a keystone species from Yellowstone Park. Because of habitat destruction, there was less and less of these wolves, there was more of the species that they prey on. And those species that they prey on are grazers and they eat everything. Yes, (laughs) exactly. They were keeping larger trees and shrubs from growing because Mm -hmm. they would just eat everything and it didn't have a chance to actually grow. And it was reshaping the entire landscape and it had even a worse effect in the biodiversity because there weren't large trees. (laughs) It became a a grassland. And then when the great wolves were brought back in, you were able to see more diversity in the landscape and those trees were able to come back. Absolutely. And just to tie back to the film, we witnessed David Attenborough's progression. As a little boy, he had very little understanding of the natural world and the critical role that it played in our lives. It seems like the natural world is so far-fetched because we all live in cities, like most of us. But then over time, you know, as David become more and more embedded in nature, he started to realize, oh my gosh, everything is inextricably linked. You know, on most days, humans probably won't even think that we're part of nature. It seems like we're so far removed from nature and we, we forget that we're part of the natural order. But then as soon as things just start to go off of balance, we're going to feel it. And our civilization is going to feel the reverberations that are coming from destruction of nature. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, really great point about poaching. So we talked about coral reefs die off, why that's a massive problem, because a huge part of the marine life depend on coral reefs. So it's not just about, oh, we're losing a couple of beautiful, colorful coral reefs. It's not that. It's literally losing maybe up to 50% of marine life, potentially. And once the ocean is out of balance, the planet will be out of balance. So this is why it's so important. And and there are projects around the world to regrow coral reefs. It's so difficult though, because it's not something that you can just easily spawn. So Alicia, after seeing the movie, what actions does it inspire you to take or discuss some of the solutions that the film talked about that really gave you hope? Yeah, a great example is Costa Rica and how the country was incentivized by the government to rebuild and replant the rainforest that was destroyed. And it's a great role model for other countries that will hopefully follow suit Mm -hmm. and shows that it is possible and it can be done. 
but I don't really interact with the rainforest. <laughs> I don't see that in my day to day. So it just got me thinking more about what can I do as an individual. And I've definitely decided to cut back, or remove eggs and dairy from my diet. Those were just the two things that were keeping me vegetarian. <laughs> I also wanted to add, ask you if you had any recommendations or I guess like how you removed those from your diet. And if you enjoyed eating eggs and cheese and it was really difficult for you too. <laughs> Great question. Honestly, growing up, I was never a huge meat eater. Eggs and dairy are definitely delicious, but I think our preferences are acquired. We were not born to appreciate meat or eggs and dairy. It's the cultural traditions that have been instilled in us. So it's it's now our duty to unlearn all those cultural traditions. That is hard. And some listeners were like, well, fuck that. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to eat meat until the day I die. You can, but we're starting to feel the repercussions of our consumption habits. And not only because animal agriculture, on a moral level, I don't agree with anything that we're doing. Like the level of brutality involved is absolutely insane. There was this statistic that said, if humans were being eaten at the rate that we eat animal the entire humanity would be gone in 17 days. That's how much animals we're eating. 7.7 billion animals every 17 days. Isn't that crazy? Just like process that. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a friend who is from Argentina and I remember Mm -hmm. asking her, what is a great Argentinian food? And she was like, steak. (laughs) So... (laughs) And it's like this competing thing between Argentina and Brazil about who has the best steak because you hear of Brazilian steakhouses. So that is a a big problem in those two countries. They're tearing down the rainforest to make way for livestock to live. Trees are carbon sinks, right? Like trees are nature's way of sucking up carbon. It's so, so, so funny that we pour so much money into carbon capture technology, but then there's trees which naturally suck up carbon. It's like, guys, why don't we just plant more trees? But then they're chopping down these trees to turn that into land for livestock, like like beef, which produces ton of methane to accelerate global warming. Yeah. Oh my God. So yeah, like what are some ways that we can curb beef consumption? I feel like there is a plant-based movement that is emerging globally, right? And thanks to Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and all these companies. And now Lab Grow Meat in Singapore. Like, did you hear about that? It's really exciting. No, what was that? Oh, you never heard about it? No. <laughs> so there is this San Francisco startup called Eat Just, and they came out with the world's first lab grown meat. And I think they launched their first commercial fast food chain for lab grown meat in Singapore, actually. So Singapore is the first country in the world to legalize lab grown meat. So you can purchase lab grown meat at a fast food chain in Singapore. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then now beef can be 3D printed. One of my friends sent me this video that you can now 3D print beef from cell cultures. So they're now calling it cell-based meat. <laughs> so it is meat then, right? It's like the cell from a cow and then grown. And yes. So there is a little bit of controversy. It's like, how did you obtain that cell in the first place? Like, were any animals harmed in the process? But then all these labs are claiming that no, no animals were harmed in the process. Uh, of extracting the cells. I'm still not exactly sure how they did it. Maybe it was from a stem cell, but yeah, it's all lab grown. That's so cool. (laughs) But it's so hard to scale. Like imagine for a cell to multiply to the point where it becomes a steak. And then now imagining that multiply to the point where it can feed a nation and a planet. Like, yeah, wow. It sounds like too much. It sounds easier to just not eat it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. Like, people, do we really have to eat this? Come on. Humans going above and beyond to, to create lab. That's how you know like, there's like diehard meat lovers. And yeah, we could definitely bring that number down by not expanding our human population to the projected size. So he mentions in the film that we'll be like 11 billion in to look at that statistic. I don't want to throw that number out. Yeah, this is another topic I feel very strongly about, which is depopulation. I am a firm believer. I know there are people who think this is a controversial idea or it's against human rights. I grew up in a country with single child policy, and I think that was the best policy that China has ever come up with, the single child policy. Now, there are definitely drawbacks to that policy with female infanticide, but female infanticide is not a result of the single child policy. It is a result of longstanding sexism and gender inequality of the country. So that's another problem that we need to address, right? So the crazy thing with climate change is that in order to tackle climate change, we have to simultaneously tackle all these other social issues like gender inequality, economic inequality, racial inequality. I mean, they're all (laughs) tied together. You can't tackle one without tackling the other. But to your point, Alicia, one of the points that David brought up near the end of the film is he was like, look at Japan. Like Japan right now, the population has stabilized. In fact, it's starting to decline because couples are having less and less kids. A lot of Japanese couples are having one or no children. And in order to make ourselves a sustainable civilization, we really need to start cutting back on population. Because at the end of the day, who the hell is causing climate change? It's humans. <laughs> like it's yeah. <laughs> you know, I definitely believe that the best way, honestly, to combat climate change is to cut down the population. But how do we go about that, Alicia? How can we convince people to have less kids? Well, I think access to contraception Mm -hmm. can be a big help in this. So it's not even like telling people, oh, you can't. If you have the option and access to that, that is a great step in in the right direction. Because a lot of women don't even have that access to make that decision. So... With that being one solution, and then the other solution could be empowering women to join the workforce. Absolutely. So it has been shown that if women are in the workforce and are working, they are less inclined to have more children. Mm-hmm. So those two things in combination, I feel like will sort themselves out. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you. Female empowerment and climate change are seemingly unrelated things, but actually they're linked and very intimately linked because at the end of the day, it's women who are bringing life into this planet. So we are the gatekeepers of human population in a way, right? So ladies, if you're thinking about how to help solve climate change, have less kids and and spread the word to the females around you. But we got to do this on a global scale, right? And I hope what women start to realize is that there's a cost associated with raising a kid and and it's only going to become more prohibitively expensive, right? As resources start to dwindle, it's going to be more costly to raise a kid, to send them to college you know, like in a world where there's too much population and then competition becomes more and more fierce and it becomes harder for people to find jobs. I think nature does have regulating mechanisms for populations, but we got to speed that up. Like we got to drastically start cutting back on population. So what about you, Alicia? Do you want kids one day? I know you're married. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, we have agreed on adoption. We would like to adopt children that are not infant, not one, two, three years old, preferably a little bit older. So Hmm. maybe 10 plus kids. 
10 plus age-wise. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're going to adopt 10 yeah. kids, I mean, that's great. You're doing the world a big favor. <laughs> yeah. My- Out of curiosity, why did you decide to adopt instead of having your own? I think that's wonderful, but is there a reason why? Yeah. It's a great way to tie into our conversation about world population. So these kids already exist, especially when they're older, kids who are age 10 or more, it's a lot harder for them to be adopted. So we're really helping them get an opportunity to contribute to society and just have a better life in general. I think adopting a kid is the highest form probably of human compassion. And I believe every life that is being brought into this this world deserves a loving home. So I think that's so wonderful and kind of you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So guys, get on this documentary. This is definitely the documentary of 2020 and also 2021. Everybody should watch it. I felt like it was a really heartfelt message from David Attenborough. He didn't need to do this. You know, he's like, I'm near the end of my life. Like, I'm going to be fine. But he did it for his grandkids, for the younger generation, for everyone else who still has a fighting chance to save the world. And I just thought that was like, oh, it was just so heartwarming. And I know this is tough. Realistically, in your head, what are the chances that we are going to make it? (laughs) Like we will succeed. I think we're going to make it, but I think we will still struggle with climate change, but I don't think we'll get to that point where we've completely destroyed it. Like he does kind of demonstrate in that film going forward 100 years where the trees are burning, the crops won't grow anymore because we have Mm -hmm. um, soil up and all of its nutrients. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that we will reach that two degree increase and then we'll be like, oh, okay, this is a reality. And then maybe we start accelerating solar energy and all those other efforts that we need to do. Oh God. Oh God. Or maybe we start like going down the route of terraforming Mars, be like, okay, we need to leave this planet and flee. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, guys. So the take home message for this film and this episode is let's not wait until we get to the two degree increase to do something about it, right? Like let's all start taking action. People have been saying this since when Al Gore came up with the inconvenient truth. But we really got to start to take it seriously now, like everybody. And not not just like talk about climate change, but actually do something about it. Like I've started to adopt a vegan diet and and you started to go vegetarian. And like nowadays, I only take public transit. I'm very mindful. And I buy most things secondhand. (laughs) So same here as well. Right. So yeah, I take it very seriously. I'm not just like, I hate it when people preach something, but then I don't actually do it. Because then like, what's the point of preaching about if you're not acting on it? But at the same time, individual actions are not enough because I spoke to someone else about it and he's a sustainability entrepreneur. He's like, you can be the most environmentally conscious person on the planet, but all the incentives in this world are stacked against you. Like on a corporate level, on a commercial level, like on a societal level, the incentives are just so perverse, like with fast fashion, right? Like with food waste, it's not that individuals don't want to take good actions, but the incentives are just stacked against you. Yeah. You're incentivized to do the bad thing. Exactly. So yeah, we really got to start thinking about how to design a more sustainable world. And guys, check out my other episode, episode 15 with Mark O'Brien. He's the founder of the Climate Designers. And in that episode, we talk about how to design a world that lasts as opposed to building things that purposely don't last. Yeah. Patagonia does a great example of that. So like you buy something and it gets torn, you can give it back to them and they'll fix it for free for life. So yeah, it's a great business model. And a lot of their products use recycled materials 
in in their products. So they have like a puffy jacket where the outer layer is made of plastic bottles or pants or weatherproof materials are made using recycled plastic. So wow. Yeah. They like weave it and then interweave it into their clothing items and materials. So Patagonia is definitely a really good company. If you're going to buy anything new, I would say buy it from there. But it, most things you can find used at your local consignment store. Yes, or just Facebook Marketplace. Let's be real. I buy a lot of things from Facebook Marketplace, not because I cannot afford a new one, but because like I don't want to add more waste into this world yep. and pollute our oceans. So like, yeah, guys, check Facebook Marketplace. Great, great place. Great stuff. Also much cheaper. So yeah. Or offer up too. Offer up has a lot. Yeah. Of- it's really great too. Alicia, can you just give like three tips? Like what are three things our listeners can do to help combat climate change? I think being more conscious and aware about what you're eating. Mm, um, diet. So yeah, huge back one. to If you like primarily walk the outsides of a store, you'll just hit the produce section. So yeah, when you go to the grocery store, just like shopping on the outsides mm. um, and you can avoid eating animal-based products or trying to remove one at a time. That would be a great help as well. And buying used items of any kind, whether that be from a consignment store for clothing items or home furniture as well. And what about joining work on climate? (laughs) Oh yeah. Joining work on climate as well. That would be uh, a great thing to do. This community has all sorts of resources. And they also have a lot of events going on with mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who are looking to bounce ideas off of the public and what we can do to make change. I think everyone should join. Work on yeah, guys, Work on Climate is the organization that Alicia and I are part of. So just go Google workonclimate.org and then you'll see all the information. But the other great thing about this organization is that the whole mission of the organization is to help you transition into a career in climate. So if you're currently working like some job that you're not super passionate about, and now after listening to this episode and watching David Attenborough's documentary, you're like, holy shit, I want to work on climate change. I want to do that for a living. Go to work on climate because it is also a networking opportunity where you see job postings about jobs in climate and you can directly have a career that has direct impact on climate. Yep. Agreed. And they also have part-time and volunteer work as well. I'm so glad I joined this organization because for the longest time, I thought I was the only person who cared about climate change. But then after joining this organization and talking to you and so many other guests on my show who are from this organization, I suddenly feel this like, ooh, like we built a coalition. There's so many of us out there who care. We're doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, listeners, definitely go check out A Life on Our Planet by David Attenborough. Fantastic documentary. Also, if you're just a nature lover, go watch it. If you're not a nature lover, you should still go watch it because we're all humans at the end of the day and we all have a certain level of accountability and responsibility to defend our planet against our own follies because that's what's causing climate change. Yeah, yeah. but yes, be a more mindful consumer. Be a more mindful human and be a more mindful member of society and think about how we can all work together to tackle this existential barrier, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, we're here and there's no looking back. We look forward. So why not build a future that we want to live in? (laughs) Yep. Very well said. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I should get like the, the, 
was the award, the Oscars. But that was my Oscars. That was my Oscars award acceptance speech, except I haven't won an Oscars yet. I should now aim towards one so that I can deliver this speech someday. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. By the way, have you seen Joaquin Phoenix's Oscar speech from last year? No. Powerful. Okay, I need to send that to you after this episode. I need to send you Joaquin Phoenix's Oscar speech. It's powerful. He spoke about the dairy industry. He's he's vegan himself. And I I love how he used his oscars award acceptance speech to talk about animal agriculture i was so happy and i was like tearing up like oh thank you walkie phoenix i still haven't watched the joker but i am officially a fan of you like (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be tweeting about how great the movie joker is even though i haven't watched it i still haven't seen it but i'm already a big fan of walking phoenix because of (laughs) (laughs) you haven't seen it either right no. <laughs> okay, but yes. So watch That's David Attenborough's Life on a Planet. Also watch Joaquin Phoenix Oscar speech in 2020 where he talked about dairy industry. Fantastic speech. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> I should have said thank you so much, Alicia, for being on the show. And thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts about the movie with us. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in to Make Peace Not Beef. I'll see you in the next episode. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you liked today's episode and found it helpful. Remember, you can watch the video version of this episode on my YouTube channel, Make Peace Not Beef. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate for more exciting content down the road. Your support is my creative juice. If you have any questions or comments, please head over to my social media on Twitter, Instagram at MakePeaceNotBeef, or shoot me an email at lily at MakePeaceNotBeef.com. That's L-I-L-L-Y. Feel free to check out my website, MakePeaceNotBeef.com, for more information. Alrighty, peacemakers, I'll see you in the next episode.